0: Hi everyone, this is Janelle Vu Pugachetti with Office Hours. Office Hours are back. I'm one of the residents now in internal medicine, and we are still going to go over mix-up questions with attendings who are practicing in the field and who are experts in the questions that they're going to go over. Um, so this week, we are doing some pulmonary questions from the student section of MixUp 5. Um, so listen up. I hope you learned something, because I know I did. Okay. So today, I have Dr. Skivo here with me. He's uh, one of our favorite attendings to work with on NICU. Um I did a quick Google search of you. It looks like you were almost a Davis lifer, but you left her a little bit from med school mm-hmm. to go to Drexel. Mm-hmm. And then you did your residency and fellowship in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine here at Davis. That's right. Um, and then I looked at your email signature to see what special titles you hold. And you are an assistant professor of medicine, Mm -hmm. Um, and you're the director of the IM research track with the residents Mm -hmm. Um, and you work in the division of PCCM which we've talked about. That's right. Okay, great. Um, We're gonna do some pulmonary questions today. So the first question is item one it's mix up five for medical students. This is a 60-year-old man who is being evaluated for progressive exertional dyspnea. For the past year, he's been unable to walk three blocks without stopping twice because of shortness of breath. He's had a daily cough productive of a small amount of white sputum, and he smoked one pack per day since the age of 20. On physical exam, he's comfortable at rest. Vital signs are normal. Oxygen saturation with pulse oximetry is 90% on ambient air. Estimated central venous pressure is normal, no murmurs or extra cardiac sounds are heard. His lung exam reveals decreased air movement without wheezes or crackles and the remainder of the exam is normal. Chest x-ray shows increased radiolucency and low-lying diaphragms. So they did do pulmonary function studies following administration of a bronchodilator and the FEV1 was 65% of predicted fvc was 75 of predicted to get to a ratio of fev1 over fvc of 0.6 the total lung capacity was 105 percent of predicted and the dlco or diffusing capacity of lung for carbon dioxide was 44 percent of predicted so dr skiva the question is which of the following is the most likely diagnosis a asthma B, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, C, heart failure, or D, interstitial lung disease?
1: Excellent. Yeah, so this is a really, really important question, uh, I think, because there are a lot of very, very sort of standard markers here that point to one of these diagnoses. Uh, In real life, um, oftentimes, presentations are never this clear and oftentimes we think of mixed uh, diseases but in this one there are a couple features here that that will point us to uh, the right direction so first of all looking at this patient's age he's 60 years old and oftentimes there are a couple things that we think of that tend to go with older age and that tends to be chronic obstructive pulmonary disease heart failure and interstitial lung disease Asthma certainly can, but typically, and especially for a board-style question, asthma is generally going to be in a younger person. Next is there's a significant smoking history here. And when we think of smoking history, especially over 10 to 15 years, we tend to think of things like COPD or interstitial lung disease. Now, of course, we know a smoking history can definitely lead to heart failure in, in many different ways. but this guy has a 40 pack year smoking history so right away i'm i'm looking at b and i'm looking at d those Mm -hmm. tend to be probably more likely Mm -hmm. just based on that the physical examination is important one we have decreased air movement and we have an absence of wheezing now in very severe severe asthma an absence of wheezing is an ominous sign but almost always we uh, asthma will go with wheezing. It'll okay. be wheezing. So the absence of wheezing usually th- makes us think it's not asthma. And frankly, of of the choices here, that. Um, go with decreased air movement, really COPD is sort of the only one that you would kind of think of okay. that goes with decreased air movement. And then the deal is kind of sealed with both the chest x-ray and the pulmonary function test. So mm-hmm. the chest x-ray shows increased radiolucency, and that usually is indicative in large part of air trapping, mm-hmm. and meaning uh, difficulty getting air out, and low-lying diaphragms, which means that if there's such significant air trapping, meaning chronic air trapping, then we would usually think that it starts to change the morphology of the diaphragms and you're gonna see flattening of the mm-hmm. diaphragms. A lateral film would really help you there mm-hmm. to, to sort of see that. Finally, the the spirometry is really important. We see that the FEV1 is reduced, which can be in uh, a number of, sh- of obstructive lung disease, including asthma, COPD, and sometimes can be seen in interstitial lung disease but that ratio of fev1 to fec is significantly reduced and anytime you see that less than 70 percent or -hmm. less than 0.7 that's diagnostic of copd the other thing is nowadays we tend to use less than the lower limit of normal with the fev1 to fec ratio and so it wouldn't surprise me if on a test you might see you know, less than the lower limit of normal like rather instead than instead of the
0: numbers, it would say that? It would
1: either say that or it would have a range of a 95% confidence interval okay. and show that the value is below that range. Got it. That's, Got that's it. kind of the more modern and probably more rational way that we use to diagnose okay. that. And then last you see a reduced diffusion capacity which certainly can go along with COPD, can go along with interstitial lung disease, and go along with heart failure, Mm -hmm. tends not to go along with asthma. Um, But the clinical features of his age, his smoking history, the physical exam with decreased air movement, the chest film and the spirometry showing obstruction, that all points to be COPD.
0: Okay, great. The next question that we are going to do is item 9 of the pulmonary section of Mix-up 5 for medical students. So this is a 60-year-old woman. She's being evaluated for a four-month history of progressive fatigue and dyspnea on exertion. She does not smoke cigarettes and denies chest pain, palpitations, dizziness, or syncope. She has a 12-year history of limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis. A screening cardiopulmonary evaluation three years ago was normal. She also has gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, and Raynaud phenomenon. She intermittently develops ulcers on her fingertips. Current meds are amlodipine, omeprazole, and nitroglycerin ointment. So on exam, temperature was 37, blood pressure 120 over 80, pulse rate was 84, and respiration rate was 16. Cardiac exam revealed a loud pulmonic component of S2 with fixed splitting and a two out of six early systolic murmur at the lower left sternal border that increases with inspiration. The lungs are clear. The abdominal exam is unremarkable. Sclerodactyly is present, and pitting scars are visible over several fingertips. There is no peripheral edema. CBC and ESR are normal, so uh, erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Uh, And EKG showed evidence of right ventricular hypertrophy. Chest x-ray had no infiltrates. So pulmonary function studies showed an FVC of 84% of predicted, FEV1 over FVC 80%, and DLCO of 44% of predicted. So which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, B, interstitial lung disease, C, left <coughs> ventricular failure, or D, pulmonary arterial hypertension.
1: Excellent, okay. So. There's a number of things to talk about here. (laughs) So again, we have someone who's uh, a little bit older. I'm not going to say old, but 60 years old. Uh, And and immediately you're going to start thinking, does that help me narrow the diagnosis? And uh, of the four diagnoses here, that actually doesn't really help. Mm -hmm. Um, Any of those could really go along with someone who's 60. Um, They give it to you right up front that she has a connective tissue disease. Mm -hmm. And in particular, she has one that notoriously goes along with two things so systemic sclerosis or limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis goes along with interstitial lung disease and pulmonary arterial hypertension mm-hmm. now there are kind of two different types or probably several different types of systemic sclerosis okay. but when we think limited cutaneous that's the one that tends to go along with pulmonary arterial hypertension okay the diffuse cutaneous or sort of the opposite one tends mm-hmm. to go along with ILD okay. that's not set in stone but just when you're sort of grouping it, that, that those tend to cohort together. Sure. So right away you're thinking, okay, it's gonna probably be one of those things, but of course someone with systemic sclerosis who's 60 could have coronary vascular disease, could definitely have left ventricular um, problems, uh, and so you know we're not quite there yet with the yeah. diagnosis. So <clears throat> on physical examination, this helps. Um, one, we do hear a loud component of the, of the Uh, S2, so that's the pulmonic component, Mm -hmm. that's fixed. And that tends to go along with um, pulmonary valve regurgitation. Okay. So pulmonary valve regurgitation is seen in very few things. A lot of congenit potentially some congenital things, but definitely can be seen in uh, right heart dysfunction that you okay. might find with pulmonary hypertension. Mm-hmm. Next, the lungs are clear to auscultation. So what we don't hear is we don't hear wheezing. We don't hear some of the other adventitious sounds. But what we particularly don't hear is we don't hear crackles, and we don't hear those fine dry crackles that we like to hear when we're thinking about interstitial lung disease. So mm-hmm. that's a pertinent negative and then of course uh, the last is they give you a lot of signs that she has sclerodactyly and other things Um, but really it's the electrocardiogram showing the right ventricular hypertrophy and the absence of infiltrates on the chest x-ray that that sort of seals it for me so of these it's definitely not COPD not based on this presentation it's definitely not left ventricular failure because we have an absence of of physical exam findings and uh, radiographic findings that would suggest LV failure Um, it's probably not interstitial lung disease again because of the clear chest x-ray in the absence of of, uh, crackles, uh, and then you have a lot of signs and symptoms that point to pulmonary arterial hypertension. So I would choose D.
0: Okay, so just to kind of back up for our students, um, can you give a brief um, overview of what pulmonary arterial hypertension is?
1: Yes, I could talk for one hour on this. Okay, well I
0: ask for a brief.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What I'll say is pulmonary arterial hypertension and pulmonary hypertension in general is usually an elevated um, pressure or elevated afterload on the right side of the heart. Mm -hmm. And so usually involves the pulmonary arterial system. Now the most common cause worldwide of pulmonary hypertension is left ventricular dysfunction or um, I guess pulmonary venous hypertension. And there are five different classes. Class one tends to be the pulmonary arteries specifically those are the ones that tend to go along with connective tissue disease okay. and then other litany of things, uh, HIV infection, um, idiopathic, a number of different things. Class two is pulmonary venous hypertension. So you'd see that in systolic, left ventricular systolic dysfunction or diastolic dysfunction. Class three is your hypoxemic diseases. So if someone has bad COPD with hypoxemia, that can cause chronic arterio- pulmonary arterial vasoconstriction, lead to pulmonary hypertension. Mm-hmm. Class four tends to be chronic veno thromboembolic disease, so that's where all the um, uh, pulmonary arteries get plugged up with microclots, and then globally it forms a high resistance pattern and causes right heart dysfunction. And then class five is sort of a, a kind of a waste basket of stuff, yeah, and so you get rise. things like sarcoidosis yeah. and um, oh, a bunch of other things that kind of lead to that. So what it actually is is increased pressure inside the pulmonary arterial system that imposes a load on the right heart until the right heart failure fails
0: got it okay thank you Mm -hmm. our last question today going by really quickly is um, item 13. Um, so this is a 40 year old man um, who's being evaluated for shortness of breath and left-sided chest discomfort without cough fever or hemoptysis he has a history of lymphoma and is now in remission So, exam of the chest shows dullness to percussion and decreased breath sounds on the left side. Chest radiograph shows a moderate-sized left-sided pleural effusion without a pneumothorax. Serum protein is 5.8, cholesterol is 200, and triglycerides are 100. Thoracentesis reveals 500 ml of milky-appearing pleural fluid, and analysis shows the following. So there are 300 erythrocytes, 890 leukocytes with 65% lymphocytes, 22% neutrophils, 8% mesothelial cells and 4% EOs. Total protein is 3.5, LDH is 250, pH was 7.5, amylase 25, triglycerides are 145 and cholesterol is 38. Cytology, gram stain, and acid fast bacilli stain and bacterial cultures are negative. So, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Chylothorax. B. Heart failure. C. Paranemonic effusion. D. Tuberculous pleural effusion.
1: Okay, <clears throat> excellent questions. Again, there are sort of a number of of things here that kind of point you to the right um, to the right answer. But but let's go through this, and then we can talk about why some of the other answers are not correct. Okay. And that, that might be kind of a nice way to instruct um, on how we manage pleural effusions. So here's a 40 year old. Again, mm-hmm. in this case, kind of like the last one, that really doesn't give you a lot of information based on his age. But I always like to look at that up front because that helps me to sort of group my group my answers. Um, And then he comes with symptoms of a left-sided is that right Mm left-sided pleural effusion now they give you a very important um, historical piece of information here is that he had lymphoma and anytime you hear lymphoma there are a number of things that we'll kind of talk about here so on examination he has uh, clinically what really sounds like a left-sided pleural effusion and there's dullness to percussion uh, indicating that he's got some barrier between the lung itself and the chest wall, mm-hmm. and that would be the effusion. Um, and then he has decreased breath sounds. And one thing, a couple things they might also say is there might be decreased tactile fremitus, uh, mm-hmm. and there might be a decrease in the ampli- amplification of sounds. Mm-hmm. And so you wouldn't actually get the distortion if someone whispered 99. It wouldn't amplify. If they said E, it wouldn't change to A. Those are all consistent with a pleural effusion, as opposed to an underlying consolidation. Right. So that's helpful. Um, chest radiograph shows you sort of what it is Mm -hmm. without an evidence of a pneumothorax and then they give you a couple important things one they tell you what the serum protein is serum cholesterol serum triglycerides and that lets you know if what you're seeing in the pleural fluid is high or normal Mm -hmm. then you see on the thoracentesis that this is not this does not have the appearance of what we typically think of as a transudative effusion. Mm-hmm. Now, separating this into a transudative versus an exudative is going to be really important. And you can't always do it based on the way it looks. But oftentimes, exudative pleural effusions will not look clear or clear or kind of yellowish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they may be a little bit cloudy, they may have a different. Uh, kind of color. So just based on this, before we even get into what are the actual diagnostic criteria of transudate versus exudate, this is milky f- milky appearing. Right. That's not normal. And yeah. that's almost never associated with a, with a transudative effusion. Now we get into the analysis. So cell count's kind of important. And cell count's particularly important when we're thinking is this perimmonic or tuberculous. Mm-hmm. Those, that, that, the, the, that's where those really sort of shine. So what do we see? We see 65% lymphocytes 22 neutrophils eight percent mesos and four eos the things that are really important here are are there a predominance of neutrophils there are some here but this is not predominantly neutrophilic mm-hmm. and so it's probably less likely a paradigmatic effusion mm-hmm. it is certainly not going to be uh, an infected pleural space right. with a bacterial infection you'd expect to see a high number of neutrophils number two There are actually a fair amount of lymphocytes here, 65%. And things that tend to go with a lymphocytosis are a tuberculous pleural effusion, if there's a viral infection, that might have it too, rheumatologic ones, and very rarely a peri effusion. But the one that we really worry about with the the lymphocytosis, we worry about that tuberculous pleural effusion. Mm -hmm. And then there are some eosinophils, but frankly, those are too low for us to really worry about. Okay. Really high eosinophils would suggest, oh, is there a helminthic infection? Is there blood? Is there air? They told you there was no air on the, on the chest x-ray. Mm-hmm. Those are things that will tend to go with a, with a eosinophil.
0: How high does the percentage of eosinophils have to be before you start thinking about those?
1: Well, you know, it it sort of depends. Usually, if it's above twenty percent, then we start to worry about it. Then we start to think about it. If it's above twenty percent, but you see a ton of red cells in there, then that may kind of alter the number you see a little bit. So, um, if it's just a pure twenty percent by itself without a lot of red cells, then you really start to think about some of the eosinophilic eosinophilic processes. Got it. Okay. what else do we see? We see an LDH that's elevated, and then we see triglycerides are 145, mm-hmm. and total serum uh, and triglycerides in the serum are 100. Yeah. Uh oh. <laughs> now, there are very few things that do that, and then of all the different things here, tuberculous pleural effusion won't do that. Heart failure is transudative and should never do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, parapneumonic effusion shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. You can see elevated cholesterol in a parapneumonic effusion, but rarely are you going to see high triglycerides, mm-hmm. and then chylothorax would definitely do that. Okay. So that kind of narrows it down there. And then of course you have to do the compulsory cytology, gram stain, and then bacterial culture just right. to see acid fast bacilli, kind of interesting, right? Because if you do an AFB stain, this could still be a tuberculous pleural effusion, but you may not actually see acid fast organisms in the pleural fluid. Mm -hmm. They may be kind of hanging out on the pleural surface. Mm. And so the only way to really diagnose that, if you really think it's a lymphocytic process with no other clear obvious you know, pre-um uh, etiology, yeah. and maybe you have a history of someone who's from an endemic area with TB or something. Mm-hmm. You would never stop at just the AFB stain and culture. Okay. You would do a pleural biopsy and Got look. It. The only time that you're going to see acid-fast uh, bacilli in the pleural fluid mm-hmm. is if it's a tuberculous empyema, which means that there's been a big cavity of tuberculosis that's ruptured into the pleural space and it just spilled a ton of organisms in there. Those are not that common, so. Anyway, just a little note about that. So based on all the information here, I look back at his history and I say, okay, he has a history of lymphoma. When you think about what tracks with a chylothorax or a disruption of the thoracic duct, Mm -hmm. a history of lymphoma is up there. It's one of the the leading causes of it. Mm -hmm. Some of them are idiopathic. Uh, some of them are certainly due to if someone had an abdominal surgery or they had an esophageal surgery and they may have disrupted the thoracic duct. That can lead to it. Um, but but you know, in the absence of all that, lymphoma is number one, two, and three.
0: Okay. Got okay. It. Thank you. That's super helpful. Yep. So, we like to end these podcasts with asking you about one, why you chose internal medicine because these students are soon going to be deciding what they go into. Okay. And then, kind of, how you tr- <coughs> started carving out the rest of your career and got interested in what you do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, internal medicine, I think, is the only discipline uh, available, really. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I liked internal medicine because I liked um, the idea that I had. Uh, A ton of different things that I could sit and think about. um, But when I really wanted to, I could do procedures and other stuff, and it really offered the widest variety for me. You know, I think all the other disciplines are fantastic as well. Um, And then why did I choose pulmonary specifically, pulmonary and critical care? Probably I was enticed like most people through critical care to begin with. Uh, My experiences in the ICU, the fact that it really represented the broadest range of internal medicine of most of the disciplines that I could see. And I could do things because I actually do like to do procedures. Um, Once I started to learn about pulmonary physiology, I sort of became hooked on that. Uh, and then why COPD there's a number of reasons I think uh, intellectually it's important and interesting I think it's um, a disorder and disease that is under treated and under recognized and I think they're a real opportunity for people to think about it and try to do good things with it Um, I myself am am working on building a center for COPD here I think that Obstructive airways disease in general is super interesting. I think the biology is interesting, and we just happen to have a really strong airway biology program here that um, has some phenomenal people that I get to work with. So I could go on. Okay, (laughs) That
0: sounds so exciting. All right, well, thank you for being here with us today. We learned a lot. Yay, that's a wrap. Um, so let me know if you find this helpful. Find me in person. I love when people come up and tell me they recognize my voice from the podcast. That is incredibly flattering (laughs) but um you can also find me on the uc davis email or find me on instagram i'm always looking to become insta famous (laughs) um but just let me know if you find this helpful if you prefer for it to be 10 minute segments with just one question or if you like it to be a little longer with the three questions or if you have any suggestions about attendings that you want me to work with or if, if you have any ideas for a name for the podcast like office hours with jvp md those are my initials or um i don't really have any other names for a podcast stuck in the back of my head so let me know um we're always looking for ways to improve you can talk to dr aronowitz um because he's a big proponent of this podcast okay thank you so much bye